so this morning, and I believe uh, next time, I'd like to focus on the theme of inquiry or investigation. And it's a really crucial aspect of our practice. It's that quality of uh, looking more deeply, of listening more deeply, seeing more deeply, and even of using questions and language to go more deeply and to, to actually help be um, tools for freedom. This quality of looking more deeply, of inquiring, of investigating, of studying. Uh, and for many of us, we may have come to meditation to get away from inquiry and investigation and the overactive mind. Does anyone relate to that? <laughs> you know, some, some would say that our culture is overly mental. Many would say that. <laughs> the Thai teacher Buddha Dasa asked about Western culture. He said, lost in thought. <laughs> and for many of us, uh, a key aspect of our meditation practice is really to move out of the uh, grip of repetitive thought and to be able to actually see our repetitive thought more clearly and enter into more and more the qualities of a mind which has the capacity to be silent, which has the capacity to be empty, to listen, to really touch ourselves and others and the tree and the clouds uh, more fully. And that's really, really crucial. And for many of us, that's where we initially go. And it's certainly true of my experience. Um, In my meditation, I started meditating when I was a student. I had, uh, when I first was uh, meditating, I had experiences which told me I was just thinking all the time. And I've mentioned uh, occasionally an experience I had when I was a student. I was living in Germany. And I, had, I, I was uh, living on a farm and studying German. I would walk two miles to my German classes for three or four hours a day. And one morning I just realized I was thinking all the time. And I was in my early 20s. And I just said, I'm thinking all the time. I'm just like consciousness on a pole. <laughs> and, and for me, studying meditation uh, was almost like a return to my senses. You know, that like in the, there are several books that, that play on that. Uh, uh, understanding and and we talk about coming back to our senses and many of us have been away from our senses away from our bodies uh, away from our emotions and probably more probably generally stronger for men than for women but certainly many you know many women could identify exactly with what I was just saying and 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 so for me it was like that meditation was learning to actually see a sunset better without being preoccupied by thinking about, you know, some issue that was up or something, you know, where I'm at a beautiful sunset and I kind of see it about 10% of the time and 90% of the time I'm preoccupied by that discussion with that person or whatever. And so meditative training helps me to be 80% or 90% or sometimes 100% gloriously with the sunset or listening to a friend or being in conversation. And the meditation training really helps do that. And I think that's uh, one of its glories, that it, it helps us to move away from the dominance of thinking 
and more towards, I think, a, a way of experiencing in which uh, thinking is one resource, but it's not, it's not our, major, our, our major force. And I think because of the overemphasis on the mind and maybe on the intellect in Western culture generally, a lot of the approaches to meditation have been dismissive of the use of the mind. It's as if we would just get to non-thinking and all our problems would get resolved. And it does resolve a great number of them. (laughs) I don't want to underestimate that. Uh, um, I think it was Mark Twain who said something like, uh, uh, I wish I had the exact quotation, it just occurred to me here, but he said something to the effect that uh, 95% of my problems were imagined concerns about something that never existed. (laughs) Or just going off somewhere. Remember our discussion of papancha in, uh, in January, this way that the mind just goes out of control and goes somewhere. And, and so the, the approach to meditation in our culture has often been just stop thinking. And I think hence, the, and also the, the initial learning about meditation in Western culture came a lot through Zen, which in itself was a reaction to the over-intellectualization of Chinese culture at the time, and Zen, you have these statements like, you know, I think from the third Zen patriarch, the famous statement, just stop thinking and there is nothing that you will not, not discover, <laughs> you know, and, uh, you know, cease to have all preferences and thinking and the, the world will open up. And so I think that, that while that's an important corrective, I think it sometimes leads us confused about the role of thinking or inquiry or investigation. And it can sometimes make us think, well, I shouldn't think about this too much because I should just be quiet. And, and I think there, there are a, kind of a series of confusions there. My own sense is that there's a deep healing and I think actually something very crucial that may be happening in our culture, which is actually the connecting more fully of thinking with the heart, the body, and the spirit. And as we do that individually, and as we do that culturally, I think that uh, um, it can lead to very huge and necessary changes. Just think about the way that um, science often and technology just get dis- disconnected from values and from the heart. And it's just things are just, even right now, the internet is just proliferating. You know, is anyone really aware of what's actually happening? It's just happening because almost like the technological capacities are there. Is it happening based on wisdom? I'm not so sure. And so my sense is that as we individually connect our thinking more deeply to our hearts and to this broad sense of spirit, I think it has a big impact individually and over time it can have a huge impact culturally. It's a a way to hold this together and think that what I'm doing is actually really important because I think it's the disconnection of thinking from the heart and from the, um, um, from the deeper spirit that is actually connected with a lot of our, our problems, you know, and reaches its extreme in something like the uh, concentration camps, you know, where this great technological knowledge and scientific thinking could be used to exterminate people. You know, it wouldn't have happened without a lot of scientific culture and tremendous ability to plan, right? And so that's, that's the extreme. So... 
the, the theme today is about really the use, the creative use of inquiry and investigation. And it, it, has, it can have a, a beautiful impact on our practice. And it can actually give a lot of energy. It can bring us back yet more to, really to the love of learning, the love of seeing more clearly. So our meditation is not just about being quiet, but it actually can be connected with learning, with transformation, with seeing more, with asking questions. And yet there's, um, there's, some, uh, there's some balancing that we need to be able to do that, especially if we still are very much preoccupied by thinking. In the Buddhist tradition, there is a very strong emphasis on inquiry and investigation in the teachings of the Buddha. And I want to mention two ways that that appears, which are really important. And then for the rest of the talk, I'll focus specifically on practical methods for inquiry. That's really the, my in- intention for, for the talk. So the first we know uh, from, there's a famous text that some of you may know called the Kalama Sutta. And the Kalamas were a people who lived uh, on a crossroads in India. And, and their um, town, her city, was probably a little bit like living in the Bay Area in the sense that they had all sorts, because it was at a crossroads, they had all sorts of visiting spiritual teachers come. They were inundated by spiritual teachers. You know, it's, it'd be the equivalent of them having, okay, this weekend you have your choice of 16 workshops or weekend retreats with people from the Kabbalistic tradition, 18 variants of Buddhism, you know, um, Christian contemplation, eclectic, non-dual traditions, and so forth. And, you, and, and they're all promising you that if you follow their path, you will come to the deepest freedom you could ever have imagined. And there are advertisements, and there are visiting teachers, and there are videos, and they have their web pages, and they probably, you know, they had the equivalent. The Kalamas were besieged by the equivalent of web pages, you know, in, at that time. And the dishes were, you know, they're having, and, and the messages were different. You know, some teachers would come and say, you have to go and find your deep self. And then you had other teachers say, there's no self at all. Get rid of yourself, your ego, and you'll find freedom. And others would say, you have to really work really hard and strive and have this deep energy and constant meditation. And others would say, oh, it's all about letting go. Don't do anything. You don't need to do anything. And they would, they would sit there, and they would, the teachers would come, and they would get very confused, very much like some of us in the Bay Area. <laughs> and so... The Buddha came through at one point, and they basically asked him, Buddha, or, you know, or the, for, him, for, for them, in some sense, this was just another teacher coming through. They had reports that he was possibly a cut above the others, <laughs> and that he might have something to say, but they didn't really know, and they were confused. And so they asked him, uh, please, recluse, and it was a term used, please, recluse, tell us. We, ha- we hear all these claims. We hear all these uh, teachings. We have all these teachers coming through. How do we possibly know what we should do? Who should we follow? And this is what the, how the Buddha responded. And it was really a kind of invocation to deep inquiry. This is what he said. Yes, Kalamas, it is proper that you have doubt, that you have perplexity. For a doubt has arisen in a matter which is doubtful. Now look, Kalamas, do not be led by reports or by tradition 
or by hearsay. This is pretty big, you know, in about 2,500 years ago saying don't be led by reports and especially don't be led by tradition. The fact that this has been going on for a few thousand years or some teachers claim to be rooted in, let's say, in the Vedas or in the great Hindu teachings, don't take that as the decisive uh, factor. He said, be not led by the authority of religious texts. Be not led by the authority of religious texts. Again, 2,500 years ago. Nor by mere logic or inference. Meaning, don't believe it just because you find it in the text. And don't even believe it because it makes a, has a certain logic, has a certain rationality to it. Pretty striking. Be not led by the authority of religious text, nor by mere logic or inference, nor by considering appearances, nor by the delight in speculative opinions. It's a bunch of pretty ideas that sort of feel good. Don't follow it there. Nor by seeming possibilities, nor by the idea, this is our teacher. So you shouldn't believe it just because you have a certain relationship. So in the, to the extent that I'm taking the role of teacher, if we were to follow the Buddha, don't believe it just because it's me. You may already have that view anyway. <laughs> but here's, here's, here's what he says. But, O Kalamas, when you know for yourself that certain things are unwholesome and wrong and bad, then give them up. And when you know for yourself that certain things are wholesome and good, then accept and follow them. And he's not so much saying that just go by your own opinions. He's actually saying go by a close study of your own experience. Again, that's an important point because you could read this and just say, oh, he's just inviting me to go by whatever my opinion is. But that's not what he's doing. He's asking for a really close study of experience. When you've really studied whether this idea is helpful, does it lead to greater wisdom or happiness, does it end suffering, then you should follow it. And if it goes in the opposite direction, then don't follow it. So this is a very strong statement. I'll, I'll I'll read it once more. Look, Kalamas, do not be led by reports or tradition or hearsay. Be not led by the authority of religious text, nor by mere logic or inference, nor by considering appearances, nor by the delight in speculative opinions, nor by seeming possibilities, nor by the idea this is our teacher. But, Kalamas, when you know for yourselves that certain things are unwholesome and wrong and bad, then give them up. And when you know for yourselves that certain things are wholesome and good, then accept them and follow them. That may be the strongest statement about the importance of inquiry among any religious founder. And I think in Buddhist tradition, there is that um, invitation to question deeply, I think in my reading, more than in any other religious tradition. It may be part of what attracted people to more Buddhist practice, that it, there's the continual questioning and not accepting things uh, dogmatically, but by, by, by really looking deeply into one's own experience and seeing what works and seeing what's there. So that's a very, very strong statement. Um, another main source of the teachings about inquiry and investigation come from the teaching called the Seven Factors of Awakening, which some of you know. And these are taken to be the qualities of an awakened being. 
the seven qualities of an awakened being. And actually, what is usually translated as inquiry or investigation is one of the seven. It's pretty important. I'll mention the, the seven. Uh, there, are, there is one factor which is taken to be a kind of balancing factor which is always valuable. That's mindfulness. Mindfulness is the first of the seven factors list, listed. These, so these are both the factors which lead further towards awakening, but they're also the factors which are the expressions of a mature spiritual being or a mature being, a spiritually mature being, I should say. And, and what's interesting is that there are three energizing factors and three stabilizing factors, as well as mindfulness, which is a little bit like the rudder. You keep, keeps, keeps one, one there. The three energizing factors all include inquiry or investigation and also effort and then also the quality of rapture or joy. And these are taken to be energizing, meaning that they energize our practice. They give us energy. They help us to go further. And there are three qualities which are taken to be stabilizing. One is tranquility. Another is concentration. And another is equanimity. And I, I won't say too much about the model as a whole, but what's interesting is that it's said that when our practice is a little sluggish, we feel a little stuck, it's really good to call upon the energizing factors. And so if we're, this, this is what the Buddha said at one point. He actually said, when the mind is sluggish, it's actually not so helpful to develop more tranquility and concentration and equanimity because it can kind of put us to sleep. This is what he said. When the mind becomes sluggish, it is untimely to develop the enlightenment factor of tranquility, the enlightenment factor of concentration, the enlightenment factor of equanimity. For what reason? Because the mind is sluggish, it is difficult to arouse it with those things. He said it's like throwing wet grass or wet cow dung on a fire. What one should rather do is make the fire flare up by bringing more uh, of the investigation or inquiry. So it really points to the way that inquiry or investigation can really um, give us more energy, can make, make us excited. And it gives us, that, that model gives us a sense of looking at my own practice and saying, uh, is my practice sluggish? Or is it um, the other um, side would be that my practice would be, in the Buddha's language, overly excited? And then he said, if you're overly excited, which we could interpret as thinking a lot, then you go for the tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. So if, you're, if the mind is um, just overly excited, restless, moving all over the place, then we, then we want to focus on the concentration or the tranquility or the equanimity. So that gives some guidance and gives some suggestion about the wise use of inquiry or investigation, that we'd want to use it when the mind is fairly balanced, not overly thinking, not overly excited, not overly restless, we'd want to use and, and we'd want to use it when there is a certain degree of concentration or balance. He said, mindfulness is always useful, no matter what the conditions are. So, that's, so when in doubt, be mindful. So the, the term that, that uh, is used for that's inquiry investigation is the translation of, 
is Dhamma Vichaya. It's Dhamma is D-H-A-M-M-A, and Vichaya is V-I-C-A-Y-A. And it's uh, usually translated as inquiry or investigation, sometimes translated as discrimination of states or discrimination or really sort of the discriminating knowledge of what's happening in one's experience. And it has, the in, in the classical text, inquiry or investigation has the power to help one see more clearly and precisely. It's thus uh, really linked with wisdom. In other words, the inquiry and investigation factor helps us be more wise. It helps us see things more the way they are. Let's see, this is, uh, let's see where this is. This is how, no, I'll, I'll use that later. Um, and so it's the ability of uh, inquiry investigation is to be able to see more accurately what's happening, to see into the nature of things. It's almost to bring, at its uh, deepened nature, it's more intuitive. It's an ability to really just be present and notice what's happening, particularly to see the nature, the nature of things as impermanent or as um, uh, interconnected. Uh, and there's a quality also of openness, that, the, that inquiry and investigation has this open-looking quality. So I want to talk for the rest of the uh, time I'll be talking about, th- about, um, uh, about three main ways of developing inquiry and investigation. Actually, I, ha- I had a list of five, but I think I'm going to reserve two of them for next time. And I'll, I'll mention what the five are so you can get a sense of it. The first is working with mindfulness. It's really similar to what we did earlier. It's a kind of using mindfulness to basically study our experience more closely. The second is what I'd call a quality of deep listening, listening beneath the surface as a kind of inquiry or investigation. The third is using particular teachings to help one inquire. So it might be to use a teaching like the Four Noble Truths, which is a teaching about um, how there's suffering, how the cause of suffering is a kind of holding or contraction or uh, attachment. And thirdly, how peace is possible, and fourth, the practical ways to get to peace. So we might use, in our meditation, for example, we might say, let me use the teaching of the Four Noble Truths and really study when I notice myself suffering. I study it. I ask, is there some kind of grasping or attachment? And then I say, can I release it? And what would help me to do so? And so we actually use a teaching as like a lens to look at the world. And I'll I'll talk more about that. So the first is mindfulness, studying closely. The second is deep listening. The third is using a particular model or uh, teaching to help us see more clearly. And the fourth that I'm going to talk about next time more is what I would call deep questioning. It's a kind of deep questioning and then it starts to use language to go more deeply. This would be, you know, in the examples of Zen, using Zen koans or... It would be using a radical question, like some of you know in the, uh, some Hindu traditions or Ramana Maharshi, the question, who am I? One would just sit with, who am I? And one would just sit with that. And I'll talk more about that next time. And the fifth is using language and inquiry 
to expose deep limiting beliefs that we have. It's a kind of deconstruction of our deepest unconscious beliefs. And this, this again, is a very powerful form of inquiry which can uh, actually lead to changes quite quickly sometimes. So I'll talk about the deep questioning and the deconstruction of limiting beliefs next time. <laughs> so it's, it's actually pretty, it's very, very cool. <laughs> it's very, very cool to cut through limiting beliefs. It's a lot of fun. It has its edgy moments, though. Uh, <laughs> okay, so... So let me, let me talk for the rest of the time here about these three, uh, three very practical forms of inquiry. And what I'll invite us to do is to work with them in the next week. And I'll try to make this very, very practical. We have some background about the teachings about inquiry investigation. So the first is using mindfulness to uh, with, more with the spirit of inquiry investigation. So this would be essentially to um, really to... Um, it's almost to ask the question continually, what's happening? What's happening right now? Using mindfulness to really study experience closely. I was thinking I had a friend um, when I went to college, you know, back in the days of um, the counterculture. And for about a year, my friend, all he said was, what's happening? <laughs> We'd meet him walking down. At the college, he, he would say, what's happening? <laughs> and and he, he, was, he was in that state for about a year. <laughs> I don't think he said much else, but it's actually a good question. And it's, it's, it, we can really um, we can energize our practice by if we're, fe- if we're sitting there and feeling a little, um, what, malaise or a little drifting, we can just say, what's happening? And just ask and try to actually be mindful. You might even do it right now. What's happening? And just check in and just study. And um, it's a great tool to use. I do it also, especially sometimes in interpersonal interactions, where I'm at a meeting. And I'm at a meeting, and part of my attention is following what's happening, but I feel some kind of emotions of vague distress. (laughs) And I will say, what's happening? And it's really a call to mindfulness, isn't it? It's like saying, let me be mindful in this moment. I'm at this meeting. My mind is following agenda item number 17. And I'm feeling some distress. And I bring some inward attention and I say, what's happening? That's a kind of inquiry. It's really bringing some energy to actually looking and seeing what's present. And very, very crucial. So just continually asking that question, what's happening? You can, you know, driving in the car, what's happening? You know, uh, sitting in meditation and you're going, you know, went, went to thinking about lunch. Just come back to what's happening, just what's going on. And there's, uh, so that's really a first thing. And then we can go into the, the different ways that mindfulness helps us inquire. First of all, it's by just noticing what's happening, using labels, just really having a little more precision. The quality of inquiry asks us to be more precise with our meditation, to really notice more. So it might be to really notice, instead of just saying thinking, it might be to notice the kind of thinking. It might be to notice, oh, I'm planning again, or oh, there's conversation with this friend for the uh, 17th time in this 30-minute sitting. And we might give it a label, might be more precise. Going further, 
the quality of inquiry and mindfulness is to, as we did in the guided meditation, is really to ask, what's going on right now? I'm feeling, I'm sitting here, and sometimes things are just passing one thing to another. And in that sense, the role of inquiry would just be to notice what's going on. But sometimes we're, you know, we're immersed in some experience, or there's an experience that's strong for us. We might feel physically uh, something might be uh, unpleasant or pleasant. Um, you know, I might be sitting here, I might not have had breakfast, so I might notice my body doing things. And I can really inquire, what's that like? You know, where, where is my mind going with it? Am I reacting to it? Am I starting to think a lot about what I'll do ne- uh, next time because of the um, sensations? Or if I'm feeling sadness and it's strong, can I just sit with it and really uh, study the, the nature of the sadness? And it's one of the uh, great revelations in meditation practice to actually be able to study closely some of our core experiences that we may never have studied closely before. That's certainly been my experience, that uh, especially in retreats, that I've been able to, you know, I've talked sometimes about I had an anger retreat where I was just angry for 10 days in a row, 18 hours a day, and I got to study it. And after studying anger, for so long, anger was never the same. There was a way that I, there was a kind of the quality of mindfulness and the inquiry was able to penetrate. And there are particular techniques that can help there. You know, and I, you know, for example, when I was working with anger, I was working with Jack Kornfield at the time. And he gave me a technique which was really, really helpful because uh, I was basically, I won't, I won't go into the causes now. Maybe I'll give a whole talk on anger. And Actually, in my book I have, Actually, I talk about this in my book. So there's, if you want more, there's, there are a few pages on my anger retreat in the book, in the chapter on anger. <laughs> but basically, the technique that he, that he gave me was to, at the end of every sitting and walking, just write down, just in a few sentences, what's been happening. And it's a technique that comes from the Burmese teacher Upandita of a kind of noting. Again, this is not so commonly done, but to actually just notice what's going on and to take some notes. And what he asked me to do was after a few days, go back and look at all my notes and see what it was. And what I found was there was almost like a map of all the different variants of anger and where I went because we're also invited to not just to study it, but notice what happens. Where does this lead? Where does this move? When this happens, where does it go? You know, what's the texture? What's it feel like in the body? That's, these are all dimensions of inquiry. And it makes, when we do it in a sustained way, it can be incredibly exciting. I was incredibly uh, transformed by looking at anger closely for 10 days. And again, um, some of us have done this in other contexts, but I know I've also had other retreats where one retreat I just looked at fear. Uh, other retreats looking at uh, joy or loving kindness. Other, you know, retreats uh, looking a lot at the nature of judgments, you know, and looking really closely and really studying them. And it's, it's, it gives, uh, it basically sustained inquiry into uh, experience is incredibly powerful. And again, it's important to really give it room to change, to open up, you know, to, because what I found, for example, when I looked at anger and I stayed with it for a while, it would often change. And it would lead, sometimes there would be sadness beneath my anger. You know, like, it, you know, in, in terms of the story, it might be, oh, I don't feel like I've been listened to. 
You know, I'm angry about that at first, but then when I go deeper, I'm sad about it. I notice it's sad. And then when I would stay with that sometimes, I would go further and I'd know, oh, beneath the sadness, there's some love. It's really important for me to connect with this person. I really value that. I, lo- I love that connection. That's really important to me. And so when we inquire into these different um, experiences, we shouldn't imagine that it's just going to stay the same or it's going to be static. Things change. That mindfulness in itself has this ability to be, to be penetrative. This is what Joseph Goldstein said about that quality. If we are mindful of an object, our awareness will sink deeply into it. As long as mindfulness is present, the object of observation is kept in view. We are not forgetful or half-hearted in our attentiveness. The mind comes face to face with the object with directness, focus, depth, and sensitivity. And he talks about the quality of mindfulness as penetrating deeply into the object. And again, it can change things. Once we've done this with some of our core emotions, our core states of mind, there aren't that many of them, you know. We could actually, you know, if you wanted to just look, you know, over a period of time at at the core constituents of experience, it'd be possible to do. And after that, there, it's, in, a, in a way, this is what our training is about. It's giving us a chance to look systematically into all the experiences. So the second quality of, uh, or the second practice of inquiry and investigation, I want to call deep listening. And it's in a sense related to the mindfulness. And we could ta- think of mindfulness as a quality of deep listening. But this is a, this is a kind of inquiry where we even sometimes go beneath the surface. The example that I gave in the guided meditation was one where we have repetitive thoughts. We notice we've been having repetitive thoughts and we actually bring our attention to our body or to our hearts and listen. Now this can only be done when the mind is somewhat quiet. If the mind is restless or distracted, some of these qualities of inquiry are hard to do. And then we can go back to that instruction by the Buddha that if we're distracted or overly excited, then the practices of concentration are good. So it's always important to remember that inquiry is not always appropriate. It's appropriate at certain times when there's some balance of mind and some degree of quiet. Otherwise, it's going to be more discursive. Are you following me here? That, that there's a, to do inquiry well, we have to know the distinction between a, a, a kind of inquiry which is based to some degree in silence and the discursive mind which is just figuring things out. We have to know that distinction because inquiry is not the discursive mind just trying to figure things out. It's a kind of listening, sometimes using language, that comes out of a deeper silence. And we can get better at that as we also as we get more concentrated. So for some of us, it may be just to say, My main practice is really simply to get to more quiet or more silence. But when we have that degree of silence, we can do that practice. We can, when there's repetitive thought, just to come, sometimes to come to the body and listen. And we sometimes find out what's driving the repetitive thoughts. Again, I I imagine many of you have had that experience, but of having, you know, maybe repetitive thought about some interaction with a person. And it's going on and on and on, and it's filling up our meditations. This probably occurs for some of you. Anyone ever had that experience? So, and 
And so what we can do when there's some presence of mind is we're noticing that repetition. And if there's some stillness, we can shift the attention to the body and the heart. We call this sometimes the dropping down practice. And, and different teachers here use that. And we just listen. And sometimes there's nothing that we find. And sometimes that we find, oh, oh, I'm feeling some sadness. Or, oh, I'm, I'm feeling some anger. There's some anger there. And it's important not to try to figure out what should be there, but really to listen. And over time, this can be a very powerful practice, and it's also very transformative. You know, uh, I notice sometimes, for example, when there, is re- there are repetitive thoughts, and I bring my attention to the body and the heart, and I, and I do notice, oh, there's sadness there. And I hang out with the sadness. I find that the repetitive thoughts don't come in the same way. It's as if, and of course it makes sense that there's some emotion beneath the surface which is driving the repetitive thoughts. And so we can sometimes take the repetitive thoughts as a starting point for inquiry to really go more deeply and see what's there. So that's one kind of, um, that's one kind of use of inquiry. As we get good at this, we can sometimes, uh, for example, in conversation, listen beneath the surface for what's there. And one of my experiences that I think awakened this quality happened early on, you know, when I was first doing retreats and I was in my 20s. And I remember I was at a retreat and I was doing walking meditation and um, for some reason I was feeling afraid of the people near me, next to me. And it was kind of an unusual experience. And I just said, what is this about? You know, and I, and I was quiet enough so I didn't just start thinking, oh, you know, go off on some tangent for some, but I actually found myself stopping and just asking myself, what is this about? And it was coming out of silence, so I didn't get a bunch of words. I just listened. I just listened to what was there. And it took a while, but I got an answer in some ways. And it was, you know, I think, I think actually at the time I was afraid of the what I was feeling as the power of the people, almost like the spiritual power of the people next to me. And I, and I didn't know that at all, but I asked that question, and there was a kind of an awakening of something which hadn't really been there in the same way, which I would connect with what the Quakers call the still, what the still small voice, is that what they call it? That it's, that, it's almost like an intuitive voice that knows the truth. And it ha- it's connected with, it's a kind of inquiry to use it. And that hadn't been active for me before that. And it came just very naturally in the middle of a certain kind of urgent situation. And it was, it was what I called, and pardon me for the language, but it was what I called my no-bullshit voice. <laughs> that I, and, I, and it came there, and I really I loved it because I could actually access it when I was in a difficult circumstance, and I could ask, what's really going on inside? And I would get something truthful. And that, for me, is also a kind of inquiry. It's a kind of listening beneath the surface. And it, it, it's an awakening of intuition, which, again, I think comes out of the silence. It's also something we can do with others. Sometimes we can, when we're having an interaction with others, we can listen beneath the surface for what's there with another person. We can ask, what's beneath the surface? And again, this is... 
It's really uh, awakening a kind of intuition. And of course, there's a lot of trickiness in this. We can fool ourselves thinking that our discursive thoughts are our intuition. And so it, it, to really do this well, we have to know that distinction between what's our discursive thought and what's the silent mind. And so this deep listening, we can talk more about this. It's a very powerful ability. This is what Mother Teresa said that this kind of deep listening is the essence of prayer for her. Prayer isn't sort of asking for things to happen. She, said, she talked about, in one interview, she talked with an interviewer about uh, the, the nature of prayer. And she said, the nature of prayer for me is a listening to God. It's a deep, intuitive listening to God. And the interviewer said, what does he say? And her answer was, nothing. He's listening to me. And she went on to say, if you don't understand this, I can't help you at all. (laughs) (laughs) And this listening could go far. Kabir says, when the eyes and ears are open, even the leaves on the trees teach, teach like pages from the scriptures. When there's that deep listening, even the trees, even the leaves on the trees teach like pages from the scriptures. Rilke said, in one of his poems, all creation holds its breath, listening within me, because to hear you, I keep silent. All creation holds its breath, listening within me, because to hear you, I keep silent. And so there's this deep, this deep intuitive listening. And again, we can do it in a very practical way with that technique that I gave you. And maybe, maybe next time I can give some more techniques. And the, the third kind of um, practice, and I'll, I'll end with this, is using teachings to help us look more deeply. And probably many of us do this in in many ways, but it's actually actively using a teaching, like the example I gave, the example of the Four Noble Truths, uh, which is probably the most basic teaching of the Buddha, is teaching that, again, that there is suffering, that the root of suffering is kind of a compulsive grasping or, or actually pushing away, some kind of compulsive way that we relate to experience either pushing away or holding on. And that it's possible to come to peace. And so we could use, and this is very much done, some of you know, in the teaching on the four foundations of mindfulness. The fourth foundation of mindfulness is actually using teachings to help us see broader patterns of experience. And we can use the teaching of the Four Noble Truths, as I mentioned. We can just in a sitting say, I'm going to look for this sitting at my experience through the lens of the Four Noble Truths. And this can help with a kind of inquiry. So I sit there, and I'm on the lookout for moments of suffering. Okay? And, I'm, and for some of us, there may be, they may be few and far between. <laughs> but for some of us, there may be some suffering. It may be suffering connected with body sensations or emotions. And when we notice that suffering, we, first of all, using the first truth, we study it. Let me look at that suffering. Let me notice it. Let me examine it. Again, this would be to use that teaching as a way to deepen our inquiry into experience. And when I'm, let's say that I'm, let's say that I'm, had a, again, maybe a difficult interpersonal interaction and I'm really suffering because of it. I'm noticing I'm, my body's getting tight, I'm being reactive. First would be just to notice it. Oh, there is suffering here. You know, to channel Sylvia, her first starting point for her reflections is, Sylvia, you're suffering, aren't you? <laughs> yes, I am. 
what should we do? Let's just apply this third model of inquiry that Donald's talking about. <laughs> uh, let's just apply the teaching of the four truths. So you've already done the first, okay? So you're, you've done the first, so let's do the second. Okay, let's look at the suffering. Is there a way that I'm grasping onto it? Yes, I really wanted that. I really wanted our conversation two hours ago to really go differently. I really wanted it. Yes, I did. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> and, and am I attached to it? Yes. I'm, I have to admit, I'm a little attached to that's what I wanted, and I'm actually still reacting that it didn't go the way I wanted. And, um, and I can even feel it now. You know, I'm just I'm complaining about that person saying, you should have done it that way. And is, so is there, would, you, would you agree, following the second noble truth, that there's some grasping for attachment? Yeah, well, there's a little, maybe more than a little. <laughs> and so we, we, and we would st- we'd actually feel it. We'd actually feel in the body, in the mind, where is their grasping? Where is their attachment? Where is their pushing away? Where is it kind of compulsively coming out of me? And we'd use that to actually study it. And then we'd say, go to the third truth and say, is there a way that I can basically let go of what I'm attached to? Or is there some way that I can come to some peace? You know? You know, if we're sitting with uh, something difficult happening physically, you know, and we're tensing around some physical sensation, it might be just to say, can I just be with the sensation without tensing around it? Can I just do that for a while? Can I do that with an emotion and just let it be there without tensing around it? And we might, um, we might work with it in that way. And then lastly, we might really, um, well, really, to get to that piece, it's really using the last of the four truths. It's saying, what techniques? What's going to help me to do that? And so that would be an example of using a teaching. And we can use all sorts of teachings. We can look for impermanence. We can work with uh, a teaching about um, seeing where I grasp, seeing where I don't grasp. And maybe I'll, I'll talk more about that next time. But there are a variety of teachings, but I think that can give you a taste. So you might actually look and say, okay, I want to work with this teaching of the four truths, or I want to work with another teaching or another lens, and we can actually look at experience. So I might invite you to work with that very basic teaching of the four truths and just use it for a sitting and use it to study experience. And so there's, I'll, I'll end by just saying that there's this um, wonderful way that when we use inquiry in, this, in these different ways, it can really make the practice come alive. It can really help us to be energized, be excited, uh, partly because we're seeing more and there's learning happening. And it can be really a very um, sweet way of looking at experience. And I think I'll close with this, um, this invocation to inquiry that I was going to mention in relation to Kate's question. And this is, uh, some of this may be familiar, it's from Rilke. And this is from his letter to a young poet, where the poet has basically asked him, tell me the complete truth about everything. And he basically says, be patient, young man. This letter to a young poet. The young poet was 21. Rilke was like 28. (laughs) So the letter to a young poet. He says, you are so young, so before all beginning, and I want to beg you as much as I can to be patient towards all that is unresolved in you, in your heart, and try to love the questions themselves, like locked rooms and like books that are written in a very foreign tongue. Do not seek the answers which cannot be given you because you you would not be able to live them. The point is to live everything. Live the questions now. Perhaps you will then gradually, without noticing it, 
live along some distant day into the answer. So it's that, that way of really inquiry demands that kind of patience, just staying with the question, with the unknown, and looking, and looking carefully with a big heart and a big mind. So thank you. So any inquiries about inquiry? So please. When you were talking about your third, about the idea of these teachings as a different lens. Yeah. As practice goes on, as one gets older, as one yeah. practices, you know, you could probably stay with the Four Noble Truths exclusively yeah. and just practice that. But yeah. then you start, and you even done it today, you start adding the four Brahma Viharas, the six parameters, the <laughs> factors. You know, yeah. and suddenly I had this model when you talked about lenses, this whole room of, of ocular instruments. Yeah. Yeah. And so how do you, you know, I mean, you know, obviously the temptation mm. is for, for superficial for practitioners with a lot of experience to say, oh, that, that's what I want to do. Yeah. Not really mining, if you will. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's a good point. Um, generally, depth is more important than breadth. And um, I would say a key way to work with them is do one at a time. Uh, it's kind of a simple answer. <laughs> but it's, um, it's actually a very... It also can give some spice to practice. Certainly, in my practice, it's actually interesting. Okay, I've looked at... I've, I've worked with this model... You know, when I do a retreat, I, might, I look at this model for a week, and then it actually I go on to another model, and it gives some fresh energy. But it, but it is important to stay with something for a long time. So you might stay with one teaching, but then I think that, I don't know, I'm speculating here, but I imagine the reason that they're different teachings is just that the human mind likes some variety. You know, if you just stayed with one of them, you know, and there's some practitioners who are well-known just for staying with one teaching and just staying with it to the end. But I think it's somehow that it's almost like you look at it with another lens and maybe you see something different. But, but definitely stay with one of them for a long time. And then, a, you know, so, so it might be that you know, we might do one or two retreats a year. Well, maybe there's a different lens that we look at at a different retreat or for a month or something. So if you, if it, I think it's helpful to stay with something for a long time. You know, like stay with... Like you might stay with inquiry practice using the Four Noble Truths. Stay with it for a month. Then maybe you switch to something else. Yeah, thanks. Please, yeah. Um, well, uh, I don't know much about this. Yeah. So I'm just asking you, um, in your description of the Four Noble Truths, could you say something more about the four? Yeah, the, the fourth is the, the Eightfold Path, and it's more like the Buddha actually used the, um, the model of medical diagnosis at the time, which is, which is basically commonsensical. What's the problem? What's the cause of the problem? What's the solution to the problem, and how do you get there? <laughs> Those are the Four Noble Truths. And, and so the, the fourth truth is the practical way to get to peace and freedom. And the Buddha talked about that in terms of the Eightfold Path, namely that there is a, almost like a training program which um, can be divided into how we act in the world, uh, how we act ethically, which is made up of right livelihood and right action and right speech, 
And then there's a way that we uh, meditate, that we use meditation uh, to develop, and that's made up of uh, right mindfulness and right um, concentration and right effort or energy. And then lastly, there's a whole dimension of how we develop in wisdom. So it might be to have right, and that would, that's called right understanding and right intention or aspiration. So there's a way in which, it, you know, if, we, if I make that very practical in terms of what we were just talking about, it might be to, uh, if I'm meditating and I'm feeling the suffering and the constriction, I might ask, well, what's going to help me to get to some degree of uh, opening or peace? And it might be to remember a teaching. It might be to remember that um, that would be right understanding, that grasping leads to suffering. That might help me in that moment. It might be to invoke mindfulness and say, let me just really look carefully at that. It might be to um, um, mm, you know, in, if, if my, let's say it was like something with um, um, an interaction with a friend, I might say, oh yeah, that, did I have right speech there? Eh, maybe not. <laughs> and I might think, well, next time I'll do that. You know, so that would be some examples. But in a meditative context, it would be mostly about uh, mindfulness and invoking wisdom through thinking of the teachings and a kind of, uh, maybe a kind of letting go if one was feeling the grasping. So that's a beginning response. Yeah, thanks. Do you like inquiry? It's... Uh, I, I love it personally, <laughs> and it's but it it adds it adds energy to it. Do you get the sense of it actually energizing the practice? By by sitting there in the cushion, we can actually say, uh, okay, let me uh, let me bring in this extra lens, like to use your metaphor, or let me let me really dedicate myself to really inquiring with my mindfulness. It gives some extra energy. So we because sometimes our meditation can just get rote and habitual. And sometimes a little flat, and this is this is like chili powder. <laughs> I don't know if that metaphor has been used before, <laughs> but it, but the, it is it is energizing, spicing up, for the sake of, of seeing more clearly. Any last question before we before we end? Okay, I'll be brief with this one. Practically speaking, yeah. would you at the beginning of your meditation set an intention. Yeah, yeah. What could you talk about? Yeah, yeah. So you, what you might do, and I, I, I really want to invite us to, I mean, we're going to stay with inquiry for next time, and I'm going to go into these actually more sexy, possibly more sexy types of inquiry that use <laughs> radical questioning and deconstruction of beliefs. So um, I, I think the first three are pretty sexy, but but you might think differently. So... Anyway, we want to, we want to um, next time we're going to continue with the theme of inquiry. And uh, so what I invite for this week would be to uh, work with, probably with, well, you have the sense of the three methods, so you might want to work with all three of them. It's probably easier just to stay with one, you know, following your question. But I'll leave that up to you. But you know, we know the three core techniques. The first just really the deepening of the mindfulness in, in various ways, really looking carefully, uh, almost like asking what's happening, what's there. The second is working with the, uh, the dropping down, 
the kind of listening beneath the surface. And sometimes we can ask questions like, what's really, what's really going on here? But in a meditative context, it can be going to the body and the heart and listening. That's a technique with repetitive thoughts. And thirdly, the using of a lens like the Four Noble Truths. So yeah, we would set an intention. Now you might want, if the mind's not so quiet, we might want to stabilize the mind, maybe do that, whatever that takes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes, get to a certain level of stability. And then we could work with the inquiry practice or work with the mindfulness for example, having more inquiry. And yes, be very valuable when we first sit saying, well, I'm going to sit, get to a certain level of stability where my mind is not so distracted, and then I will move into the inquiry practice. You know? And again, that doesn't mean that we're actively doing inquiry. It might just be you know, like the one with the Four Noble Truths is really to be on the lookout for suffering. If there's no suffering, the inquiry doesn't have to happen in the same way. Or we might really want to really, really notice experience carefully. But yeah, make that intention at the beginning. And how many would like to take on some kind of inquiry in the next week? Okay. And, we, and take some notes if you'd like. We can really compare things. You know, take some notes, see what you find, bring back questions. And we'll really have time next time to really see what's happened, to work further with, you know, if there are questions of technique or how do I do this, am I doing it right, we'll have time for that. So, um, well, I'm, I'm happy that we're doing this, <laughs> and uh, I look forward to your explorations and uh, seeing what we find, and we'll have some further information about these other types of inquiry, which are actually really pretty, some of them are intense, and I'll tell some personal stories about my use of some of the tools, further tools. So, let's just sit for a minute or so. Just to let be present what may have been helpful from the morning from any source to do with the theme of inquiry or possibly differently. And then um, to let what's been helpful come and then also let any intentions for the next week be present. So as we typically do at the end of the sitting, we remember that we practice not just for ourselves but for others. And may the fruits of the morning be offered outwardly for the benefit, the healing, and the transformation of all beings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.